1: And I'm just a super nerd.
0: Listeners, we're back and you're back. And we're finally going to talk about the show we promised weeks ago. We're caught doing?
1: up. Doing Jazz hands.
0: Jazz hands. Um. Oh my goodness. You know I'm delirious and I'm already singing and we're just getting started. Episode 322... I'm just gonna jump in, Sarah, because we have insane amount of questions and comments mm-hmm. on this topic. Um so it all started back in
1: Pause. Yeah. Pause. Yeah.
0: Little disclaimer to our listeners.
1: <laughs> the following podcast episode is going to talk about female reproductive anatomy as well as feminine feminine hygiene products. If you are used to listening to this podcast with your young children in the room, you may wish to save this episode for later. Unpause. <laughs> okay. Um,
0: so we're going to talk about menstruation and we're going to talk about products that we use, prefer, maybe aren't gonna use anymore, um, as well as um <laughs> a little from column A and a little from column B. <laughs> Just 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 maybe. Um, but also as always backed by science. And um there's a lot of science out there as it relates to things like toxic toxic shock syndrome as well as the chemicals, the toxic chemicals that are often put in store brand menstrual products. And so we're going to talk about why that's important for female health in general, not just reproductive health, because while it goes into your reproductive organs, it is also entering your blood flow and all of the things that go into your overall system. So um, it all started back in September, I think. Yeah, definitely September because I was at um, Staunton, Virginia, Stanton, Virginia. I know Stanton wants me to say it that way and I just can't. Um, But we went to the Harry Potter weekend and I have gotten to the point with my cycles where I don't have huge amount of crampings or PMS or there aren't really big signals to identify for me that it's coming. If I'm paying close attention, I'll recognize that I have cravings for... Foods that are higher in iron and magnesium, that's usually the indicator to me. Um,
1: Like steak and chocolate?
0: (laughs) Exactly. And broccoli. (laughs) Broccoli, steak, and chocolate are my my period foods. Um, That's not weird. Me and everyone in the the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it totally surprised me. And we are there in a small town, and I didn't have my cup with me. Now, I've been using my cup since I switched to cloth pads after Finian. I only had my period like, I don't know, twice. And then I I had Wesley and then I moved to a cup. So I haven't been using traditional menstruation products for a decade, but I've been using a cup, um, for I think like seven and a half years. And, um, I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't even know what to do. (laughs) Like I was freaking out and I had to decide if I wanted to get pads or tampons or what I wanted to do. And so I got I, I had Matt go to the store for me. He's such a hero. And he got organic cotton, um, not plastic uh insert. I forget what it's called. What's that outer thing called? Anyway, and I was like, This is great, this is perfect. yes
1: okay yeah yeah Uh, I was like what are you talking about oh hey a tampon applicator
0: there you go see you can tell it's been a while (laughs) (laughs) um and I was like this is perfect like you did a great job this is exactly what I needed like thank you so much I'm glad that they had this product in this town um and I went to use it and it was like I was a twelve-year-old girl. Like I just, I had so many problems. I had a difficult time figuring out how to use the applicator. I opened it in a way that like caused the applicator to come off, and then I just it just got worse over a couple of days. And what I realized is that there was um, a hygiene issue with the string of the tampon that you had to remove it before you went to the bathroom and then you had to replace it. And so if you didn't have enough blood flow to warrant the need to replace it, it was painful to remove it and reinsert it. Um, I know I'm getting graphic here, ladies, but this is what the show is going to be about. Um,
1: <laughs> yes, the disclaimer at the top, yes there
0: you go. Um, and I I just was like, oh my gosh. Like I remember when I switched from tampons to a cup um, and just feeling like, I was an idiot who couldn't figure out life and I was sure that it was going to leak all over the place and it was going to be a mess and I couldn't handle it and blah, blah, blah. And then here I was because I'd been using a cup for so long and I had the exact same feelings about tampons. And then um, I was having this conversation on social media and people were like, well, why do you use a cup? And it occurred to me that we haven't really had this in-depth conversation um, because switching from a tampon to a cup Years ago, well, first I, like I said, I did cloth pads when we were cloth diapering, and then I, I switched to a cup. Um, not shortly after that, and um, it reduced my period by multiple days. It reduced the intensity and the cramping specifically of those periods uh, by multiple days. I remember in high school needing to be taken out from school because of how bad the cramping was. And I was using tampons at the time, just regular over the counter, just, you know, basically the, the, the worst of the worst that Sarah's going to go over the science on. And, um, and I just was like, oh my, we really need to cover this. We need to cover it from a science perspective and also from a practical perspective because um, I think that a lot of women are are afraid to change what they've been using their whole lives. You know, you're, you're worried like, well, what's going to happen? Is it going to leak? Am I going to get stuck in a public bathroom and not know what to do? And so we are your friendly neighborhood podcast friends. And we are here to tell you that, that you can do it, and we're going to talk a little um, more about why that's important and hopefully help give you the confidence to switch to something that is good for your health and, in my preference, also good for the earth um, and and that you're, again, comfortable with. So, um, Sarah, what's interesting to me is I always think of you as being, like, the extreme green queen, if that makes sense. like. You know, whenever I say something, you're like, yep, and you've got 18 science articles, and you've already been doing it better. Um, <laughs> and So um, it was interesting to me that you said after you'd done the science, that there were things that you learned that you were going to change about your routine. So I'm super excited to hear about your experience and the science.
1: Yeah, which one of those do you want to hear first? All of it. Just give me all of it. <laughs>
0: well, why not? Yeah, why don't you talk about your experience first and then we'll jump into the science cuz I, I kind of
1: shared mine a little bit. Well, I mean, I I find this interesting because as I was getting into the statistics, I didn't realize how, what a huge percentage of women prefer tampons. When I was a kid, there was, uh, you know, it was right in the like peak of toxic shock syndrome. There was a lot of like, you know, tampons are terrible. Don't leave them in for very long. I never liked them. I never found them comfortable. I found the like, you know, abrasive, removal thing just to be awful. And so I think I told you this uh, as we were chit-chatting before the podcast a week ago or or two episodes ago um, that I I have a box of tampons in my house that is still bilingual. It has French on one side, and I have lived in America for 13 and a half years. (laughs) So this is how frequently I use tampons, which is basically like once every three years or so. And so because it's not, uh, I don't use an internal product, which is definitely of greater concern when it comes to absorbing chemicals, I haven't ever put a ton of thought into what I use. And uh, and so this was one of those times where you were like, oh, you know, hey, let's talk about this. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. And I think like literally I like started looking, it was, I think um, like a Sunday and I was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll start some research, you know, I'll have a look. And then I get up in the morning, Monday morning and I go to my coach. I'm like, I'm never using a regular pad or tampon ever again. <laughs> like, it was like, and that was, she was like, wait, what? You have four days to get this, this research completed and get back to me. <laughs> and it was just became like, it's, it's become one of those things that it's become a conversation at my gym. Like. I um, I sort of, I could intuit the problems with tampons. Like that sort of seemed obvious to me. What I was sort of surprised is the implication with pads as well. And we can get into the science with that. Um, and then I also, like through my research, was able to be like, wow, there are so many options so, so many
0: options. And that's what I love is that if a cup isn't right for you, or if a cloth pad isn't right for you, like there are brands of um, underwear, which Sarah, you and I talked about um, for younger girls, that's what I would do. One of the top questions that we got. Um, so we'll we'll get into all of those questions. But I, I love that, you know, when I first got my period, um, golly, 25 years ago? Is that a thing? My goodness. Yeah. Um, need
1: to edit that number. (laughs) Why? It's fun. It just feels...
0: That's okay. I'll
1: say I first got my period 12 years ago, and that way, my daughter's 11, so the math doesn't work out.
0: No, I'm okay with owning that I am an experienced menstruating woman. (laughs) I can give great advice on this, it's been 25 years. But I specifically remember one of my first periods and being in the gym class of elementary school and sitting crisscross applesauce on the gym floor and standing up, and like the whole room could hear I was wearing a diaper, you know? Like it just, I I don't know if that was true or not, but I could hear it.
1: No, when I when I first had my period, the thin, like the current type of pad that you get at any old store, yep, that had not been invented. Yep, yet. and it was the old school pads that yep. were literally an inch and a half thick. Now, and I was
0: t- you didn't have to wear the belt kind though, right? Because I'm sure we have some well, listeners. You no,
1: know, they were they were certainly they were like peel and stick. Yeah, but they were like. Um, like a boat shape (laughs) totally totally and and like an inch and a half thick and i was 10 like i was not i mean i was i was a tall you know big 10 year old but these were not made for like shorter people like they it felt like i was i I don't know it felt like i had a basketball between my legs like I, i was walking around bull legged the entire day because this thing was just like so it was it was a lot of material. It was really excessive. All right, I, I think we made our point. What I hope
0: to you listeners who have a product and you love it, go to our social media on the shares of this podcast um, or our websites and leave comments about what it is you're using and why. Um, when we get into talking about cups, I have some recommendations to give because that's what I use um, and. That's not going to work for everybody though. So I'd love for all of you listeners who do use something um, that avoids a lot of the negative health effects Sarah's going to talk about to share what you use and why. And then um, I am excited at the idea of the women who, like you, um, might find this information helpful to improving their own health on a personal um, personal care product because... That's been my passion for the last couple of years, and so I can't believe that this is a topic that we haven't talked about since it's. I I just took it for granted that that information I mean, was I, out I there.
1: Feel like it has come up in other
0: podcasts. Yeah, so. I think so. And I have a really in-depth blog post. It's like one of our most highly trafficked blog posts that reviews all the different kinds of options that there were five years ago. Like it doesn't even talk about period underwear in that post because he didn't exist back then. So. I know so much. Okay, well let's get let's dive into it because we have so much to talk about.
1: Uh, we do. So I I think the place to start is this like broad statement of hang on, what is the problem with like regular old tampons and regular old pads that I can get at the drugstore or the department store or whatever? And it really boils down to the fact that um, there these materials are not regulated there's no labeling laws um so there's no there's no regulation about what kind of materials are allowed to be in these products so um the companies are basically going like does this absorb liquid yes or no great like they're they're trying to solve this one very simplistic problem without any constraints on the type of materials that they're supposed to use and when you layer on top of that The fact that uh, the vagina and vulva are actually – it's not regular skin. It's a mucous membrane, and it is very absorptive. It absorbs um, the chemicals that are in these products. And uh, and because there are all kinds of known problematic chemicals in these products – uh, there is the capacity that using regular tampons and using regular pads is actually contributing to some of the chronic health problems that are, uh, you know, unique to women, but that women face and and broader chronic health problems like cancer. So, um, you know, not to, to draw, you know, a direct line, because one of the problems here is that The research is incredibly scant. Um, There was basically zero funding for any kind of vaginal health research until the 90s. Um, And then the earliest vaginal health research focused purely on sexually transmitted infections and how contraceptives um, and feminine hygiene products like personal lubricants could impact the Sort of easement of infection. So, how, how, you know, what's the rate of infection if you are um, having intercourse with an infected partner, if you're using a lubricant, or if you have been using some of these other, you know, feminine hygiene products. And um, the early research, right, that has shown that there is an increased risk of infection. And it is because, uh, you know, some of the some of the earliest things that they discovered, and this is just in the 90s, this is not that long ago. This is the beginning of this type of research. Some of the earliest things that they discovered was that there were certain chemicals, the sort of best known example is glycerin, which was uh, and actually continues to be a very common base for personal lubricants, actually uh, damages and irritates the vaginal epithelium. So the, the barrier tissue. And basically, it's the same thing that happens in leaky gut. So it's like leaky vagina. And it increases um, absorption from whatever's in there. So then it therefore translates to increased transmission of infections. And they found, certainly enough, it increased transmission rates of herpes and uh, HIV. So uh, that was sort of like a revolutionary finding. And it it was like, oh, wait, that tissue is absorptive. Like it was, it, it's one of those things that you, like all of a sudden realize how male dominated uh, sciences and medicine have been for millennia. And it's only been in the last couple of decades where there have been enough women in, um you know, granting agencies and labs that are, are interested in sort of, you know, going down the rabbit hole of some of these issues in terms of investigating the, the impact that we've started to get some data. And what this is now starting to translate to is actually this almost um, like whistleblowing type effect where there are some female scientists who are advocating for more research, because as we'll see as we get into some of the more specifics, um, there is way, way more unanswered questions than there are answered. And there seems to be some interesting um, uh, sort of intersections between Uh, Just general, right, the funding environment right now for medical research is really, really poor. Every single field is underfunded. And so there's so much competition for so little grant dollars that anything that's not considered uh, like monetizable, like leading to a drug or a a surgical development or a, um, you know, some kind of medical equipment, all of that research is the lowest rate of funding and so something that is going to lead to increased regulation and decreased profit falls into that basket and then there's also right there's been some uh, politicians who have been advocating for funding uh, government funding to be able to sort out these issues, and uh, those bills have not passed, um, which again is is potentially uh, a result of our male-dominated Congress. So there's this sort of intersection of of all of these different roles that has led to this basically complete uh, and sort of terrifying lack of information such that third-party organizations have started to take on the responsibility of doing some of this testing. And so a lot of what we know doesn't even necessarily come from peer-reviewed scientific studies, but, you know, from, you know, funded by independent third parties uh, like government grants. But instead, it is these uh, advocacy groups, these nonprofit advocacy groups that are doing third party testing to be able to be like, look, no, there's like there's a real there's a real thing here and we really need to be to be worried about it. So the the biggest thing to emphasize here is that uh, there is a reason why these tissues are absorptive. So our um, female sex organs are a sort of self-cleaning and it's because uh, because of uh, intercourse there is the introduction of foreign material uh, to the vagina. So the the vagina has sort of evolved to be this and, and it's like this across mammals. Um, to to be a very different tissue from any other tissue in the human body. It has a very, very high density of nerves. It has a very high density of blood vessels and it produces mucus that, uh, you know, similar to our intestines are lined with mucus, our sinuses are lined with mucus. Um, that mucus is part of an epithelial barrier. It um, keeps bacteria from latching on. It sort of washes away, right? Harmful microorganisms. Um, but, Like our gut barrier is semi-permeable, like our lungs are permeable, like our sinuses are permeable, so are the vaginal tissues. And what's really interesting is there's a lot of the external portions of female sex organs that are also the same type of tissue. So because it's a mucous membrane, it has a much higher rate of absorption than skin. Um, So we we can kind of think of it simplistically as skin, but it's it's really not. It's really a a very, very different type of tissue. And what's interesting is that the initial research looking into the absorptive capacity of the vaginal wall was actually looking at drug delivery. So there were um, some studies that looked at the vaginal application of estradiol, which is a synthetic estrogen, and showed that it resulted in... Uh, blood serum levels that were 10 times higher than with oral dosing. So if you take the same amount orally versus vaginally, you will get 10 times more insured blood vaginally. And that's because this tissue is so absorptive and it's basically just crossing an epithelial barrier. It doesn't undergo any kind of modification or metabolism as it crosses, which a lot of drugs do do when it's crossing the gut barrier. So this is basically, you know, it's opened up this really interesting field of research showing that you've got this like additional route of administration for certain drugs. Um, But it also really reinforces that things like hormones get into the bloodstream really easily from a vaginal application. And the, and so you have to
0: well not just i mean i hate to interrupt you but just to be clear cuz this is really important to me and one of the things that you know i i have come to be familiar with um is that this this greater risk to this exposed mucus um rich environment without the same type of skin barrier that let's say your forearm has mm-hmm. um Is not only, you know, like the drug can be absorbed that would have a hormone, but all of these hormone disrupting chemicals or Hmm. hormone mimicking chemicals or carcinogens and all of these things that you said at the top, which is that this field and the ingredients in them are not regulated. They don't need to disclose um, things on their label and they can make claims in their labels that aren't substantiated because it all falls under... The personal care,
1: yeah, Act. some of it weirdly falls under like medical device um, regulations instead of personal care products, but it's still it's still unregulated. Like it's yeah. they different products have different uh, classifications, but they're all unregulated and they pretty much all have uh, no strict labeling laws as well. So, if you're unfamiliar with
0: this topic, make sure you go back and listen to our podcast episode where we talked about. Regulation in personal care products because I think it's really important to understand this for for anything that you're putting on or in your body. Um, We talk we we focus so much on you know the food and and all of the things that we do in our body, but what you're doing on the outside matters, and you need to learn how to decipher all of these, these words and you know chemicals and all these kinds of things that can impact your health. And I think also, Sarah, I'll just like point out that this is one of the reasons that baby wipes would have had such a high impact to negative health because they're being used on genitalia as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think about 10 times higher in an adult, think about the concentration of those chemicals on a wipe going into a tiny baby you know what I mean? Like, it's just, of of course, we're going to have results. So anyway, I didn't mean to derail you. It's just this point is like one of the things that really just rouses me up. And I just am shocked that as such an advanced country and and knowing what we know in the medical field, um, all of this research is, is science-based that you're pulling, although there isn't enough and we know that, we're still very aware that these... I, I'm calling them chemicals, but I mean a particular kind of chemical, right? Um, can be disruptive to our health and yet we're not doing anything about it. And it's just it's so frustrating to know that there are so many people out there with so many health conditions that could be improved by
1: simply removing some of these
0: things that we know are bad. So
1: I, I mean I think this is this is where we are. So we, we know all these chemicals have problems so some of them are linked with cancer some of them are linked with actually like problems with reproduction um, some of them are endocrine disruptors some of them are um, high allergen rates and we did we we did a and we'll make sure there's a link in the show notes we did a previous podcast where we went through the the most sort of worrisome yet prevalent of these chemicals that are in personal care products and a lot of them are also in feminine hygiene products so we know that there's these chemicals that have already been identified as problematic chemicals are in, I mean, we're focusing on tampons and pads and healthier alternatives in this podcast, but this actually, this conversation extends to vaginal wipes, it extends to personal lubricants, it extends to douches, it extends to um, uh, the, you know, like the I was gonna say I'm gonna call it vaginal perfume. I'm just gonna say anything that
0: you're putting in your lower region.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so it actually extends to this entire class of uh, products that are marketed to women's hoo-hahs, basically. (laughs) Uh, Right? It's it's not just it's not just tampons and pads. That's what we're focusing on for this episode, but it, it really does extend beyond that. So we know that those you know those products contain chemicals that have been identified as harmful to human health. And then we know that the vagina is highly absorptive, more so than the intestines. And yet there is no study, or at least no well-conducted peer-reviewed study. There are some bits and pieces from third-party testing that actually measures the absorption of pesticides or dioxins or parabens or some of these other potential chemicals from tampons versus pads and into you know the our bloodstream. So the one that gets
0: me, I don't want to leave it on the table is fragrance. Like because fragrance is as we talked about previously, the catch-all category for um, companies to put any ingredient they want and not disclose it. And so if there's one thing I want you to take away from today, it's to make sure that the products that you're using do not have fragrance, like please. Right.
1: And, and and actually, there have been a couple of harmful fragrance chemicals associated with both tampons and pads, including diethyl phthalate, uh, which is also an endocrine disruptor, and galaxis, galaxalide, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is also an endocrine disruptor. So those are... Added to tampons and pads as a fragrance, and they are known endocrine disruptors. Uh, hey, there's dioxins. Our dioxin exposure from tampons is probably, as as a as a, a females and as a collective, is probably orders of magnitude higher than our dioxin exposure from food grown in uh, polluted areas. Uh, it's probably much, 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 much higher. Um, there's a class of chemicals called furans, which come from the chlorine bleaching process. Uh, so if there's cotton as an ingredient, it is typically bleached because you wouldn't want to put a off-white colored tampon in it. it must be <laughs> pure white. Um, oh, the horror. <laughs> you know, it's bleached uh, using a chlorine bleaching process that produces these furans parabens, which are a endocrine disruptor. They're also carcinogenic. They're a huge problematic compound in personal care products. And uh, the last one I, I just really wanted to emphasize, because I think we've covered the whole collection, is pesticide residues. So even when you're talking about something like uh, cotton as an ingredient in tampons or pads, cotton is one of the most highly sprayed crops in the world, And there's been third-party testing that has found at least eight different detectable pesticide residues just in one brand of common brand of tampons. So all of these things, we, you know, we're buying organic food and wild caught fish, right? We're trying to limit our exposure to all of these things. We're spending, uh, you know, a premium price for higher quality uh, makeup and, you know, skincare products and hair care products. And yet this exposure is so much worse because the vagina is so much more absorptive than our skin. And so it's, it's actually really like, this is where I I got to the research. I was like, dang, this is not cool. And it's really not cool that there's so little attention being paid to this issue and that there's so little funding for, continued research to really be able to get into the nitty gritty of how much is absorbed, what are acceptable exposure levels by this route, right? And and we have that for all of these chemicals in a lot of other contexts. We don't have that in this context. And it's something that's really, really desperately needed. So I think the last um, topic around sort of safety of tampons and pads that I think is really, really important to discuss is toxic shock syndrome. And it's because there was a very, very strong link between a dramatic rise in toxic shock syndrome and an increased use of tampons among women. Um, This is in sort of the 70s and 80s. And it actually very, very dramatically increased when there was the addition of um, four different synthetic compounds that were added to create these new high absorbency, super absorbency tampons. And when that happened, the um, case the number of cases of toxic shock, shock syndrome skyrocketed. Like it just went crazy. And that led to a bunch of research. It led to three out of those four, Uh, synthetic uh, compounds being removed from tampons. Uh, The least bad out of the four is still used in regular tampons. It's called viscose rayon. And it also led to these um, sort of best practices from uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That was like, don't wear your tampons overnight. Don't wear them for more than... I think it's eight hours. I'm not quite sure if that's still still the case. Um, And, you know, all of these additional sort of recommendations. Um, Toxic shock syndrome is caused by a specific toxin that is secreted by a bacteria called Staphylococcus aureus, Staph aureus. Um, People have probably heard of Staph aureus because this is also uh, a really um, dangerous hospital inquired infection. There's antibiotic-resistant versions of this. This is the skin-eating, flesh-eating disease as a staff infection. So it's a it's a very very problematic bacteria. But there's a bunch of di- right there's a bunch of different strains. They're in our environment all the time. And there's a little bit right there's a little bit in our guts. So there's a little bit in our private parts as well. But during menses, um, there's A very protein-rich liquid now flowing through the vagina um, that basically creates uh, a warm protein-rich and low-oxygen environment that is basically a perfect breeding ground for staph aureus. And what researchers discovered is that when you use a tampon uh, to block the flow, you're actually concentrating the proteins— and uh, removing even more oxygen, so you're creating an even better environment for staph, to, uh, *Staph aureus* to grow, which is why there was this dramatic increase in toxic shock syndrome. And toxic shock sh- syndrome is life-threatening; it can be fatal. It is a very, very, very serious condition. It is the thing that scared me away from tampons for life. Um, and so it's, you know, it's it's uh, a very, very low frequency. So you're talking about, um, you know, it's literally now down to like 0.3 in 100,000 is sort of the incidence rate. Um, So it is very low incidence, but when it occurs, it is uh, very serious. It requires medical intervention. It is uh, the symptoms for, for, yeah, I think this is one of those things that every woman should know the symptoms.
0: I just want to let you know that that's not a random statistic. I had someone reach out to me through Instagram which is less than a hundred thousand person reach to tell me that she had a like severe hospitalization from toxic mm-hmm. shock syndrome, so this is not just something that's happening for, you know in the fifties a long time ago to you know to to nobody it won't happen to you like it's it's legit
1: yeah it's it's a real thing, and even though the the rates have decreased, i mean they were in the You know, 17 to 20 per 100,000 in the mid 80s, and so they're, you know, a twentieth or a fiftieth of that. But it's that's still a worrisome incidence rate, and that's just what's reported. So there's the other problem that depending on the type of medical intervention you seek, it's not necessarily reported. So these types of epidemiological estimates are often underestimates. So it could be that the actual incidence is much higher. So the symptoms. I think everyone needs to know this: uh, sudden high fever and dizziness when changing positions, uh, specifically uh, or most notably from stand, like from sitting to standing, and that's caused by low blood pressure. So it's low blood pressure and high fever. Other symptoms that you may or may not have, there is like an atypical toxic shock syndrome, which doesn't have all of these things, and sometimes they have some of these more minor symptoms without the more obvious like fever and dizziness. So other symptoms include nausea and vomiting, a rash that resembles a sunburn, um, and sometimes a rash that is just on the palms of your hand and the soles of your feet. So you might think it's like, hand, foot, and mouth disease, uh, muscle aches, confusion, and headaches. So all of those things are symptoms, but you might not have all of them. You might have two or one. Um, So it's very, very important to seek uh, medical intervention immediately. And if you're using any kind of uh, vaginal product for menstruation, to cease immediately. Um, And then the typical treatment is very intense, high-dose antibiotics. Um, so it is, it is a life threatening medical emergency. So seek medical attention immediately. And so, um, these synthetic products that were linked with this increased risk of incidents were removed from tampons. Uh, there was all of this educational material that started in, in the sort of late eighties and nineties and that was like all about, you know, why, why you can't just stick one in there for four days and think that everything's going to be great. Um, and, um, And the rates went down and it was initially thought that the rates went down because of the removal of these synthetics. And uh, it was initially thought that all cotton, you know, organic cotton tampons had much lower risk of toxic shock syndrome compared to uh, regular materials. Now there's definitely a link. There's a higher rate with high absorbency tampons compared to regular, but comparing an all cotton, which is a sort of regular absorbency compared to a synthetic and cotton mix tampon. Um, What's really, really interesting is that there's been a couple of studies just in the last couple of years, including one that is actually coming out next month, that has shown that the all-cotton tampons, like what you used, Stacey, actually potentially have a higher risk of toxic shock syndrome. It appears as though they create an even better environment for staph aureus to grow and a stronger stimulus for staph aureus to make the toxin that is uh, the the reason, right, is the cause for toxic shock syndrome. So there is actually some interesting... Data And it's not consistent. So there were some earlier studies that showed that all cotton tampons had lower risk. So I don't think this is super cut and dried. But if you've seen a lot of like scare tactic type, you know, news stories lately, or news stories that talk about menstrual cups as being worse, you know, having a higher risk of toxic shock syndrome, it actually comes from this paper because it was uh pre published online way back in April, so it has had like seven months to be able to like build attention and it really this one paper has gotten a ton of media attention um and so i you know I went and read it and got into the details and what's interesting is they really you know they really do show some reasons why they didn't use they'd use one brand of organic all cotton tampons, and a couple brands of non-organic. They did all seem to show higher rates of Staph aureus and uh, toxic shock syndrome toxin. So that was an interesting finding. With the menstrual cups, it was similar to tampons. And what was interesting, though, was some of the um, earliest cups that came on the market, they used a variety of different plastics, Um, most of the ones that you can get now use medical grade silicone and medical grade silicone had a lower growth of staph aureus compared to the other materials. So it definitely pointed to if a cup is your option to go with a, um, a a medical grade silicone cup. And what was interesting was, you know, the, the other research has sort of come out to say, um, you know, there's, You you can even see this in the the, um, instructions that come with various brand cups of, you know, cleaning it in between uses. They all have a maximum time. Um, There's sterilization procedures. There's... um, recommendations now to at least have two so you can be sterilizing one as you put in the other. So you're switching back and forth and making sure that you're always putting a sterile one in. And that is a direct result of this particular research showing that basically, if you're going to put something in your vagina during your period, you need to understand that that will increase your risk of toxic shock syndrome. Now, you can get toxic shock syndrome in other ways. It is a thing that exists and you can get it in ways that you don't even necessarily know how you got it. So it's not just like it's a tampon caused infection. Um, but I think it is really important to for, for everyone to know that there is a slightly increased, or at least the science is pointing at this point, to a slightly increased risk of toxic shock syndrome with any Uh, product for menstruation that is going to go into the vagina. That being said, you know, it is it's a non-zero risk, but it is quite low. Um, And I think it's just very important to follow directions to, uh, you know, if you're using a cup to, to sterilize it between uses and then also be aware of the symptoms so that you can get medical intervention as early as possible if you are unfortunate enough to experience toxic shock syndrome.
0: I am curious, um, the risk of non-inserted items with toxic shock syndrome is almost none, right? It's, it's from, um, items that sit for a prolonged period of time that accumulate bacteria or what, like, what is the trigger?
1: Uh, so it, it's interesting because, It's a lot higher if you use tampons than just being out in the world, but just being out in the world, there is a risk. Um, One of the risks may be associated with um, some kind of, you know, a scratch or, um, you know, like if you – I think one of the reasons why the cotton tampons are increased, and granted the the studies can't show this for sure yet, is that they – Kind of stick to the vaginal walls. I was going to say they're more the, that abrasive yeah. pulling so as can you're cause. Yeah, them, they cause um, these microabrasions. So it's actually causing like a scrape, an internal scrape, damaging the skin. And if you're doing that over and over again, you're damaging the same part of the vaginal wall over and over and over again. And that is a much more direct route for things to come in. What's interesting with the Staph aureus uh, and toxic shock syndrome is it appears as though some of us, about 80% of us make antibodies against it. And so if it's making this toxin, like if it's, if it starts growing, we just, our immune system kicks in a high gear and attacks it. And so it never produces enough of the toxin to create toxic shock syndrome. And then there's 20% of people who just don't make antibodies against it. And so um, people who get it once, appear to be at higher risk of getting it again. So that's the other really interesting thing is that um, it doesn't look as though if you get toxic shock syndrome, your immune system learns it and then goes, aha, I'm going to attack this thing next time, which is what you would normally expect from a flu virus. Although bacteria are very different, right? You can get strep throat how many times in your life. Um, but you're only you're you know from a virus. Typically, when you fight off a virus, that's it. You don't get it again. So um, it seems to be uh, somehow related to. I mean, there, there's other situations where staff can grow out of control and produce this toxin, um, but certainly you're creating an optimal environment for it if you are um, menstruating, and uh, and then it seems to be also sort of linked to this, like, huh. of women are basically not at risk because they form antibodies against Daph aureus. And then this other 20% are. So um, it's interesting in the sense that there's, there's not really good answers for why one woman would and one wouldn't, woman wouldn't. There's plenty of studies that look at, you know, Hey, this person was doing, you know, like case studies, this person was, you know, using a a menstrual cup and they got toxic shock syndrome and they were following all the directions, they were disinfecting the cup, like, we don't know what this person did differently to to get this. So there seems to be an aspect of toxic shock syndrome that is like a susceptibility aspect without necessarily having a, like, checklist of things that would make you more susceptible. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay.
0: We have we're going to need to jump into rapid fire. That's what we're going to do. We're going to,
1: <laughs> well, so. I, I wanted to quickly summarize and we can put the, the list because I, I really want to give you an opportunity to talk about your experience with menstrual cups, because I think that's a really great option for people who prefer tampons. Um, but I do kind of want to like, here's, here are like the class of options and there are multiple brands for every option that are non-toxic, that do testing, that have good practices. Um, so I just kind of want to summarize that. And and we can put this list of, of brands into the show notes. so You can go and look at them. For every one of these things, there's differences between the brands. And so you may prefer one menstrual cup and not another. You might prefer one type of a reusable pad and not another they're all going to have slightly different properties and they're going to fit slightly differently and so there there's a lot of different options and that's great because all of us have slightly different shape we're all different shapes and we all have different needs um, but i do before we get into that rapid fire uh, there are organic cotton disposable pads so there are um, pads that are made with basically chemical free materials um, they tend not to be as absorptive as your whatever always infinity with wings, um, but but they're a, a great option except for the, the landfill aspect. Um, there are reusable pads which you launder, um, and they're generally made with um, you know fabrics that are you know eco friendly and green, and also they're going to be non toxic. There are the organic cotton tampons that we have mentioned, which are certainly better from a chemical pesticide, dioxin, paraben point of view, but potentially not better in terms of a toxic shock syndrome point of view. There are uh I don't know if you have ever tried these, reusable natural sponge tampons. So like I have. I'm gonna talk about it. I have. Uh, I hope I hope you're gonna you're gonna say something about them.
0: Sure, I can right now. This is this is what I meant by rapid fire, by the way. Um, yeah, <laughs> I just was I, like, I we have s- such a long list to get to. Um, so I did I did use natural sponges. They are messy. There's no way around that. You have to get them out, um, and it's not like a string. Like it's it's a natural sponge that you squeeze out. Um, They are amazing for people with uncomfortable fit, which is the problem that I was having between babies when I use them. Um, I used both the brands that you've got a couple listed here, Jade and Pearl and the Sea Sponge Company. Um, And what you can do is is trim the natural sponge so that it fits comfortably for you. However, um, I did have occasional, I don't want to say like leakage, but the same way that you would if you had like a heavy flow with a tampon. Um, And so I always wore mine with a pad, a natural, I I always used um, reusable pads. I think it was the Luna brand that I used to use. Um, But I definitely think that you need something in combination with that sea sponge. It's a great option for people that don't want cotton or who have like silicone allergies, Um, but you're just going to have to buck up to the idea that it's
1: going to be messy. <laughs> but I mean, what I think is really cool about that idea, um, I mean, you sold it with the messy um, really well, but like, <laughs> that part. Um, what I think is really cool about that is that it is, I mean, it's a very, very um, natural material that is not going to be irritating, right? Like that to me is like super cool. It was, it
0: was honestly more comfortable than a cup like it's because it's yeah anyway if you cut it and trim it perfectly to your body and then it's soft inside there it's good for movement however um like a tampon it will absorb water if you go swimming or something like that whereas a cup wouldn't so i'm going to jump into a lot of questions that we have but that's that's just my personal experience with a, a sea sponge
1: okay so the next, I mean, the next, we've already talked about menstrual cups, but there are a variety of brands that are made with medical grade silicone and they all have slightly different shapes. There's, they have typically every brand has multiple sizes. Um, they're basically, you know, some are good for, uh, you know, small cervix, low cervix, high cervix, like they're, they're, there's a, going to be a brand that will fit you. It just might be a little trial and error in order to find that brand. And then I think you've already mentioned these Stacy's period panties, which is like a really cool thing that didn't used to exist. And now it's a thing and there's many, many brands again.
0: Yeah. So the brand that I use is actually called Dear Kate. I don't know if they exist anymore. I've had mine for years and um, they're starting to wear. So I need to look into getting new ones. But I actually that was the only brand at the time when I bought them years and years ago that offered plus size. So if that's something you need, um, I know thinks is the most popular brand. Um, but dear Kate, if you are a full figured woman might have better sizing options for you.
1: So again, I, I mean, I did some research and found, uh, like good brands of all of these options, it seems silly to just read them all out on the podcast, so we will put them up on the show notes on both realeverything.com and the thepaleomum.com, so you can go and get a, a quick sense of these brands, but then I encourage you to then read more about each one if you're trying to figure out which one is going to be the best for you because, again, every single one will have sort of different features and different limitations, so it'll really depend on what you're looking for, but there are lots of options.
0: Okay, first question: <laughs> How do I choose the best cup for me? The simple answer to this is to go to the website putacupinit slash quiz. I know it's crazy. We'll put a link in the show notes. Is that a thing? It's totally a thing, and it's spot on. I would not give this recommendation to you if I didn't try it and have success with it myself. I personally have tried several brands of menstrual cups and the one that works for me and my sizing really well is the brand it recommended for me when I took that quiz. Coincidence? I don't know. But it takes into account most cup websites will just ask you questions like, have you had a baby or not? And then it'll also ask you questions like, is your cervix high or low? And a lot of women don't know that. What I love about this quiz is it is very detailed in asking you, like, I don't want to get graphic, but it, it'll be very clear as to what it is that it's uh, <laughs> wanting you to describe about the sizing of the inside of your body.
1: I'm sorry, I'm just like I don't even know what the questions are, but and I'm you're just, just giggling awkwardly anyway. Thinking about like. What kind of questions would get at them?
0: Well, I mean, you can feel around in there and figure out what's going on, and it's going to ask you to do that if you don't know already, right, ladies? We can, I feel like it's like a 1960s, like fried green tomatoes with a mirror <laughs> party, and I'm <laughs> asking you to explore yourself. But this is so important for. Like your health and fit, because one of the things we didn't talk about um, is that if you're using a cup that does not fit you well, and you're using it for a long prolonged period of time, there can be a downside of a prolapsed. What did you? What do we call it? Where is it? Um, with prolapse, either with your bladder, your uterus, your cervix, whatever. Right. So, like, if you have a tilted pelvis and you're pushing on the wrong parts down there it can cause problems and so you want to make sure that you're using it and that it fits and if it's uncomfortable in any sort of way if you can feel it if it hurts if there's pressure it's not right take it out try it again later you know that just
1: answered about 10 of the questions that we got that i have on this list (laughs) okay Um, because so There have been, and I'm just going to summarize, right? So there have been people who've been like, um, you know, it 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 feels weird. Um, What if I've had a prolapse before? Bladder prolapse, uterus prolapse, cervix prolapse. Um, I wear it, and it makes it, you know, makes it hard for me to pee when it's in. Um, Don't do that. Take it out. Take it out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So basically, if it feels weird in any way um, then it's the wrong size.
0: Yeah. And it, that's where I'm saying that a cup could potentially not be the best solution for you, right? Like perhaps your body is built in a way that that kind of pressure permanently in the inside doesn't work for you, which is, I would recommend then, um, if you really wanted something, the natural sponge, because it's not going to have pressure or something that stays on the outside. So period panties or pads. Um, I mean,
1: that's the way I'm sticking.
0: Right. But take the quiz because I've already had people, cause remember I talked about this in social media last month and I mm-hmm. shared that, put a cup in it quiz thing. And I'm already having women who took the quiz, was using a cup before, didn't like it, didn't, you know, whatever the result was, didn't work for them, took the quiz, got a different brand recommendation and fit, got the cup had a period and are already telling me their world's changed. Like I've had multiple messages from women with that experience already. And there there can't have been that many people who've already had a cycle and had the ability to do that. So if it's something you want to look into and you experienced it before and it didn't feel right, take the quiz and and give it a shot. For me, part of the reason that I use it is the um, medical grade silicone doesn't have the toxic chemicals and all the things that we've talked about. There's no risk of that at all. Um, and then it's also ecological. Like I had and used my cup. Another question that I got is how long does it last? I yeah. I had a I, next question. I had a stem break at year six. Like the cup itself was fine, but it was difficult to get it in and out without a stem. Um, and that's just from the pulling and the you know bending of a stem caused wear and tear on it year six. So for me, one cup (laughs) lasted six years. Um, That's to me incredible from the landfill and other things that I was using before. And frankly, it's better than the reusable pads that I was using, which cause a lot of energy and water and all that kind of stuff to be washed. So it's the best option for me. It might not be the best option for you. Um, The other most common question that I get is, people are intrigued and they can't figure out how you would get it in and out without spilling. I totally get that because I had the same concerns and I will admit that one year, one time in my seven years of using a cup, um, I dropped it in a toilet. (laughs) That was catastrophic because I couldn't put it back in and I was, you know, like germs, obviously. Um, And so that created a situation for me. But other than that, I have had zero issues. And what I love about it is that it creates an airtight seal. So it's the only thing that I've been able to fully go swimming in and have zero repercussions or concerns at all. I can go out on a boat all day long in the summertime and have no concerns because my cycle has been improved from... Letting things naturally flow, that's another thing that we didn't kind of talk about. Um, That's an advantage to a pad or a panty or a cup and not an advantage of a sponge and a tampon. When you're allowing your body to naturally flow and and get everything out – you're going to decrease the amount of time that your cycle exists because it's, it's not getting clogged not up. not
1: blocking things up there. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, kind of, I wanted to emphasize because there was a question of uh, does it actually shorten your period? How is there less blood? There is not less blood, right? The, the uterine lining is above any of this stimulus. So there's not actually less blood. What's happening is whether you use a pad or use a cup is it's not being impeded. Uh, so gravity is is doing the work that it's supposed to be doing and it is just coming out the way it's supposed to come out. So it's not uh, it it's, can shorten the period um, and it, it can certainly feel like there's less just because. It's fewer days, um, but the uterine lining is still the uterine lining. It's not sending uh, a signal to the the uterus to have a thicker lining or a thinner lining. So um, I kind of felt like that was sort of an important, like a it's just one of those like slight terminology things, right? Um, and also, you know, I did want to also say that often changes in how heavy a period is or how many days it lasts or how crampy it is, has a um, it has a stronger relationship to hormones, to things like stress. Um, what your thyroid is doing can impact uh, your menses quite substantially. Uh, but if you're using conventional tampons, that is a physical stress that is uh, because it's doing physical damage to the vaginal wall would be uh, creating an inflammatory response, so that is like the one exception where something that you could be using for your period could actually be changing the quality of your period because of that sort of stimulus. Does that make sense?
0: I agree. I would argue that using brands that are over the counter that are filled with all kind of um toxic chemicals that we talked about fragrance, mm-hmm. parabens, all that kind of stuff is also Affecting your endocrines and your reproductive hormones in a way that might also be um, worsening your periods, and I I think that that's what I hear most often for people is when they switch and they remove whatever whatever safer option they switch to, they're seeing a decrease in things like cramps or things that would um, point to reproductive hormones being affected in some sort of way, and for me that wasn't like right away. That was like three to, I don't know, maybe six months. I started to see changes in the way that my body was reacting to periods. And so I I don't know, right? Like I'm an N equals one yeah. equation, but I hear I'm, that I'm so often.
1: That from the science perspective, I'm going to give that a, I mean, that's potentially true, but at this point there's zero scientific yeah. studies to support it, but it is potentially true in the same way that uh, BPA or phthalate exposure from plastic water bottles, right, can change, or uh, phytoestrogen exposure from eating a lot of soy can also change things, right? So we've got these other ways of being exposed that we know do impact reproductive hormones, which then can impact or can, which can then affect the menstrual cycle. So it is, you can totally see a, if a, equals b and b equals c then surely a equals c like you can totally see that argument here but i do want to sort of emphasize that at this point there are no scientific studies to confirm that
0: if only people cared about women vaginas
1: <laughs> okay i, I read us i read it was a scientist a female scientist who said <laughs> uh if there were more women in power or men menstruated we would know this by now
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right moving right along (laughs) because we suck at rapid fire but that's okay you don't expect that of us right ladies listening mostly well i mean maybe there's men listening and i hope that you're sharing this information with your with your loved ones but okay um I was answering the question of how do you get it in and out and it doesn't spill. Um, So the great thing about a cup is that it creates this airtight seal. And most often when you're putting it in, you're not like, not most often. You're not just like straight inserting a cup with it open. You're you're folding the edges of the cup and you're kind of um, inserting it with a twisting motion. And the twist allows the cup to then unfold inside of you and create that airtight seal, which is why you want to make sure that it's fitting you uh, because where your cervix sits and how long your vaginal canal is and all that kind of stuff plays a large role in the cup fitting you properly. Um and so if it can't unfold, then you're going to have issues. And that's why a lot of these questions that we're going to skip over um, specifically are addressed with getting a cup that fits. So um, once you have it in and you create this airtight um, seal there, I have never heard a case of somebody like whose cup just came out and, and, you know, a bowl of menstruation spilled all over them like i have never ever heard that now someone is going to comment and say that that (laughs) happened to them but
1: There's there's a
0: person there's a person but i would i would say that person didn't have an airtight seal like that's that's the definition of an airtight seal right is that there's there's no way for it to go now you can have a slow leak just like you could have with a tampon where if it does eventually fill up and there's nowhere else for it to go the liquid will find a way around the edges um And I have had that happen to me on heavier days, Um, but it's just like anything else, like a little bit gets into, you know, my underwear. And that's why I usually wear either um, uh, period panties or a cloth pad in addition on a heavy day on my, I only have a three day period and I have one day that's heavy on the other two days. I don't need to do that. Um, But that's just the only protective measure that I need to remove it. You're just sitting on a toilet. Um, And you'll have wanted to practice this at home, obviously, because you want to be next to a sink and stuff like that uh, before you get used to doing it out in public. But I've gotten to the point now where I just put toilet paper over my fingers and I'm able to grab the stem. I hold on to the stem and I squeeze the bottom of the cup a little bit um, to release that airtight seal, and then I'm able to just slowly remove it. And I don't have that terrible tug, Sarah, that you talked about with the microdermabrasions with the cotton. That was something that I'd completely forgotten about with tampons. And so if that's happening to you with a cup, I would definitely look into potentially having a silicone allergy. There are latex cups, and I don't know how that relates to some of the toxic shock stuff that you've talked about, Sarah.
1: Don't recall if that study had latex in,
0: in their sample. Okay. So I'm just gonna, going to, look it up. okay. So I'm just going to say if you have any sort of um, pain or tugging on the actual skin in the vaginal canal, that that's like a micro, like an uh, abrasive type feeling, mm-hmm. that is not a good thing. That's going to expose you to all the stuff that Sarah talked about from a risk pack, factor perspective. And it probably indicates an allergy to whatever material you're working with. That is a, really, really small minority, um, comparatively. So, um, the likelihood of that happening is, is not plentiful. I hope that that helps you. I would also say that there are so many YouTube videos. So make sure that you're just doing your research and feel comfortable practice at home. Um, like I said, I've been doing it for eight years and I felt like I was bumbling with a tampon because a cup is so seamless and easy to me. The other thing that's great about a cup, um, and it would be this way with a pad and period panties, but not with a sponge or a tampon because of the way they absorb is you don't have to remove it if you're going to the bathroom. So, um, Because that airtight seal, there's nothing like being contaminated in there unless you're wiping over it on the outside. It would get on it, obviously. But nothing can go in. There's no string. There's no nothing to absorb any sort of body fluids otherwise. So to me, that's... Like, I I love that about it. I love that I can just use the restroom and not have to worry about doing anything with my cup if I'm having a non heavy day. On heavy days, I change it once. Um, So, I I really, it depends on on you and your body, but um, it is a lot less often than a tampon if you have the right fit now obviously there are people that are going to have a heavier flow or whatever but for me to get rid of all of that in three days it's you know it's not a slow trickle obviously so i think i think i represent a um, a regular type person um for a flow so
1: i looked it up and the study only looked at silicone and thermoplastic elasto- elastomer
0: yeah i don't even know what that is
1: it's tpe for short okay
0: well, there you am I'm, I'm assuming that latex is going to fall in the same kind of category as silicone as long as it's not so. causing abrasion for you. So, all right. Um, Sarah, I don't know if you have an answer to this. Is there a downside for the cup holding liquid inside that long?
1: Uh, I would say the the downside would be exactly what we talked about in terms of creating an environment for staph aureus to grow. Um, that that like that's why right that's why there is that increased risk of toxic shock syndrome is but because-
0: that's also caused by there needing to be an abrasion or something that's kind of the catalyst for that bacteria if i'm understanding correctly correct
1: uh, no not necessarily so uh we simply have a little bit in there all the time so the higher basically as um liquid is collecting in there it's a high protein liquid So it's basically creating food for staph aureus. Staph aureus are are protein fermenters, so they they love to eat protein. So um, it creates an environment where staph aureus likes to grow. Then if they decide – I mean basically if they grow – if they reproduce enough, they will then be stimulated. Basically if their population gets high enough, they will be stimulated to produce – toxic shock syndrome, toxin one or whatever it's called. And then, uh, and then that's what leads to toxic shock syndrome. So, uh, it's basically a question of then are you susceptible? So the, the tear can increase translocation, but because the vagina is absorptive, you can get translocation without the tear. So that would be, that would be the, the, Downside, which would be, it would certainly make a case for changing it more often, uh, and switch, and you know, making sure it's clean, right? So, so sterilizing in between. So, sweet. Yeah,
0: they do have wipes for cleaning in the middle of the day if that's something you want to. But I don't know what's in them. Like to me, it's my personal thought that the less I'm handling them in a public environment when I'm out the less uh, bacteria I would be introduced to, which is different obviously from the specific toxic shock bacteria. But if we're talking about like general germs in a public restroom, like it's, I have taken the stance that I don't need to change it and therefore I'm not going to. And then when I get home, um, is when I change my cup. So I change it usually in the morning and I change it usually after work. Um, and then I run it through the dishwasher um to kill oh, it yeah. so, so
1: uh, you know i I saw an article that was sort of going through this information, and it its recommendation was to have two, so you can sterilize one while the other one's in, and then you can switch back and forth um, and it was recommending like boiling, which is the dishwashers like even better than that um, but I think this is one of those like cups are a fairly new thing there there's not enough data to i think at this point be able to really say this is how often you should empty it this is right do you know what i mean like i would definitely say if the comp- if the choice is between emptying it in a public restroom that's going to be increased exposure to unknown infectious agents like my inclination would be also to not change it and wait till I get home, if that makes any sense.
0: And because you don't need to change it, when you go to the bathroom, it becomes something that is practical. So, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, okay. I don't know the answer to this one. And I feel badly because I said I would look into this and I, I don't. Someone asked me about a soft, someone asked me about a cup versus a soft disc. And evidently this soft disc is something that is um you can throw it away and um you can evidently still have intercourse with it uh but it can also be reused um when i looked into it initially there was like plastic and i i was i just wasn't feeling really confident about it the idea kind of was like oh that's not something i want to do and so i did, i didn't like fully look into it um do, have you
1: heard of this sarah no and it I mean, I did some fairly extensive research preparing for this podcast and it was not something that came up in my research. So
0: if that is something you use and you love, like I asked at the top of the show, you know, feel free to share about it in the social media or blog post comments. Um, And maybe if we know more specifically what you're using or why you love it, we can look into it. But um, it's not something that's worked for me for the standards that I have. It was disposable and it had plastic. And so I just was like, eh, no, it's not for me. Um, Can menstrual cups be used safely with IUDs? I am not a medical professional, so please consult your doctor. However, if your cup fits properly, it's not touching your cervix. So I don't know why that would be a problem. Um, And the person in particular was asking, she's wanting to switch from tampons, um, but nervous because of a cup. I would think that a cup would be better because the tampon could hit the end of your cervix, whereas the cup is going around the edges, right? An IUD is inserted into the center of the cervix, Sarah. Mm -hmm. So I would think that a cup would actually be better to use with IUDs. But again, I'm not a medical professional.
1: Yeah, I would check that one with a doctor. I I can't think of why a cup. Wouldn't be okay if a tampon is, but that's yeah. That's my opinion on it as well. That's, that's a question for a gynecologist.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, last two. We're almost there. Someone has a fourth degree, degree tear from a baby. Will oh a cup that's be... not co- a
1: nice baby, by the way. <laughs> not consider it on the way out.
0: I am, but I'm sure you're happy to have the baby. I mean, the
1: baby's a sweetheart. I'm
0: just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, will it be comfortable? Um... You don't know it until you try it, but again, make sure you get one that fits. I honestly would recommend in this case, most likely something like a sponge or, um, a period panty, especially in the, obviously this is not something you're going to, nothing you should insert, um, after you've given birth, your doctors tell you, I think, um, at least six weeks. So make sure you're following your doctor's, um, recommendations, but, um, if it's not comfortable then we've given lots of other options that could work for you um, and the next question is basically the same thing she's having a baby next month. what about postpartum so uh, postpartum doctors are going to tell you no insertion you know risk of infection and and all different kinds of things so it's not going to be something that you can, you can use postpartum however yeah exactly it's,
1: it's, it's a horror show down there actually. yeah it's fine it's lovely sarah the baby distracts you and it's fine but you're 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 not gonna want anything going up
0: there. yeah 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 and honestly um the kind of pads that they give you in the hospital after the first couple of days are enormous. Um, so unless you wanted to make your own with some like cloth rags and stuff, I would, I I would just go with what you need to do for the couple of days postpartum and then switch to a safer option going forward.
1: Ooh. Ooh. And get some more of those crotch ice packs. <laughs> load up, ask the nurse, she'll get you a ton of extras. Just load up on them and bring them home. They're like amazing. Oh, we did it. We, <laughs> we, did it. we did it. And I
0: just want to thank all of our um, audience for participating in this and being so engaged. I have not had this much participation in a topic that I talked about in a really long time. And I, I didn't realize how much people are craving this information. So um, we're going to put links in the show notes to different podca- uh, different blog posts that you, Sarah, and I have both shared on this topic. But I want to encourage you to do your own research. Um, When I was looking into things preliminarily, I was blown away by, for example, how many very visual youtube videos there are on cups and so the idea that someone is worried about how to get it in and out and spilling and all that kind of stuff like you can watch five minutes on youtube and be set so just make sure that you're doing your research on what's a good option for you and then get educated on how to use it properly so that it's seamless for you
1: okay i think that's a wrap.
0: Thank you so much Sarah for sticking it out. I started the podcast late because Finn had a playoff baseball game and so I was baseball momming it up. Um but it was a doozy of a show and thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like the show, if you found it helpful, if you think there are women in your life that need to hear it, we would love for you to share it with them and uh Leave a review so other people can find it. We love your five-star reviews and uh, we look forward to hearing your feedback on what options you love or if this show helps your next menstrual cycle, we would love to get your feedback so that um, we can hear your wonderful success stories. That makes us so warm and fuzzy, even for me with my tiny black heart who hates hugs. (laughs) I still like to feel warm and fuzzy sometimes.
1: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. I
0: am so amped up after Finn's playoff game. I've become a baseball mom. <laughs> I have like all kinds of adrenaline. My heart was pumping. I had to take off my jewelry because I'm already hand talking. Let me just tell you it was like the like two outs of the last inning. Finn is batting. There's a guy on third. All he needs to do is hit the ball to bring the guy home. So that they tie or win the playoffs. And he did it. But the guy got tagged out because the guy was running slow and the ump, whatever. Parents always think the ump made the wrong call. But, um, (laughs) my blood pressure, (laughs) what'd you say?
1: Your boy did his
0: part. My, yeah, he did, and he was like really upset with himself. He was like, "Should have had a better hit to let the guy come home." And I don't know. It's just like interesting to see sports stuff. Like, I'm I don't get sports at all, and but I'm such a competitive person that, like, I get it. But I also am just I think it's so cool the way the team comes together and rallies around each other and are like screaming and cheering each other on and like what that does for little boys' confidence they're not really little boys anymore, but you know what I mean? Like, do your girls get that with swimming? I don't know. I don't think it was quite the same way with swimming, although
1: maybe. So Adele does CrossFit now. The, uh, she swims over the summer, but like she was over year round swim team by February last year. So she switched to CrossFit and she is starting to like put on visible muscle, which is kind of cool. So she, her piano teacher, on the weekend said um well you're athletic it like in the you know it was like part of a broader conversation and she looked at me and went am i mom <laughs> and i was like yeah you crossfit like own athleticism that's cool like go do that that's great and she was like oh okay okay and you could just see her kind of like puff her chest and so she's like i'm athletic uh so it's interesting because con- because she's always had some kind of sport hobby. She danced and then it was swimming and now it's CrossFit. So she's always done something and she's never identified as being athletic before. Um, But then Mira dances um, like five different dance styles and we're at the dance school three days a week and she's like crazy. So I don't think she has that same (laughs) issue. But yeah, I mean... Dance, I guess, is closer to a team sport, Um, but I think still the way the classes are run, it's still very much of a, did I dance my best? It's until they get into like competitions and performing where they're like placing as a team, it still feels like it's more just about like me learning how to be a better dancer rather than the team sport. So I don't know if they get the same, I don't think either one of them get that same like team sport. Um, dynamic.
0: Well, what's going to happen is I'm on the super high right now. And then 20 minutes in my adrenaline's going to (laughs) tank. So let's get started. I I texted Matt T and it arrived almost immediately. So since I've given him shame on previous podcasts, I'm just going to publicly announce that he